scripture comes from Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the leaders of the people and the high chief priests assembled in the palace of the chief priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and then kill him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Who killed Jesus and why did they kill him? Those are interesting questions, I think, for any time, but especially as we come to this Holy Week together. And if you start looking at the list of uh, candidates or the usual suspects, you would start with the Romans because the Romans had the authority and the power to kill Jesus. The Romans crucified uh, thousands and thousands of people in the time that they occupied uh, uh, Israel and Jerusalem. They had specially trained crucifixion squads who could stretch out, if they so desired, a crucifixion to last as long as three days for the maximum amount of pain to be endured by the victim. So you might start there. But the question then is, what was their motive? Why did they do it? Did they kill Jesus because he was a rival king and somehow Caesar, all the way over in Rome, was afraid of an itinerant rabbi who had about 12 men and 7 women following him around? It's doubtful. It seems that there's probably another motivation. The motivation may well be explained by a couple facts. One is, in the days of Jesus... There was on the gates of Jerusalem the skull of a man named Thutis. His head had been cut off and they left his skull there. Thutis had led a revolt against the Romans some years earlier. And they left his skull as a reminder, don't do this. Don't try this. Also in the middle of Jerusalem was the Antonio Fortress, uh, named after Mark Antony, which housed a Roman legion uh, to try to be available to quell any unrest because they didn't want unrest to get back to Caesar because Caesar then would come down hard on everybody who lived in Jerusalem, uh, the Roman uh, occupiers um, as well as the citizens of Rome. Uh, Pontius Pilate was not a wealthy man. He had never been a senator. He had worked his way up through the ranks, starting in the army and then ending up being appointed governor of Judea. He didn't need unwanted attention from Caesar. He needed everything to run as smoothly as possible in Jerusalem. He needed no more unrest. And so when it looked like there might be unrest over Jesus, it became more convenient for Pilate to have Jesus killed than to deal with him and the possible unrest that might come from him remaining alive. If you want to know the motive politically for killing Jesus, it was just that Jesus was inconvenient. He might become a source of unrest. And yet, you could ask the question, how in the world did Jesus ever get into the hands of the Romans? And there we go back to our scripture this morning, which pointed us to the religious leaders, the the elders, the leaders of the people, and the chief priest, and the high priest Caiaphas himself. The the elders of the people religiously could um, decree the death penalty, could sentence someone to the death penalty, if they could find them guilty of blaspheming the temple. So you see in that interrogation, when they bring up false witnesses, they all want to comment on the fact that Jesus said he'd tear this temple down, and he could raise it back in three days. They need that evidence to put him to death. But why in the world would the religious leaders of the people who worship the same God as Jesus, why would they be interested in his death? Was it because of theological differences? 
Now, I don't deny that in the history of, of Christianity, people have killed each other over uh, theological differences, much to our shame and embarrassment. But generally what was going on in uh, Israel at the time is that Jesus would have probably followed most of the teachings of the Pharisees. The priests and elders would have been teaching most of the uh, teach. They would be following the teachings of the Sadducees. But it wouldn't be worth killing each other over. It would be like being a Methodist in Texas or a Baptist in Texas. There's some difference, but it's not that big a deal. There was, I think, another reason. And as they used to teach people in investigative reporting, if you want to get to the bottom of something, you simply follow the money. And what you find out is that the chief priests, became very, very wealthy in Jesus' day. When I was there in 1999, for the first time, they took us through what was probably Caiaphas's home. It was at one time three stories tall. It had beautiful mosaic floors, which still exist to this day, had hot and cold running water, and a lovely bath. The priest lived in luxurious style. In fact, Jesus told a parable about um, a good Samaritan. He talked about a man walking along the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and a priest passes him by. And you might wonder, why in the world was a priest going down that road? And the answer is that most of the priests were so wealthy that they owned a second home in Jericho where the climate was more to their liking than it was in Jerusalem. So when they weren't on duty at the temple, they were enjoying their riches in Jericho. Well, how did they get so rich? It uh, seems pretty uh, obvious to scholars that they got rich uh, um, off running the temple, and especially they got rich at Holy Week, because what would happen is you were to sacrifice a lamb at Passover. Most families couldn't bring their own lamb. They were traveling too far, and the lamb had to be without blemish. And so they would buy a lamb uh, from one of the flocks that was raised in Bethlehem, of course, owned and run by the priests. So when you got there, you had to buy their lamb at their price, and I assure you, they set the market value, and it was high. And after they had fleeced you in the buying of your lamb, uh, they wouldn't take your money just yet after they'd given you the price because your money was unclean. It was no good in the temple, so you had to exchange your money for their money to use in the temple, and guess who set the exchange rate? The priests. They were making money hand over fist, They were filthy, filthy rich. And they had gotten rich off the backs of religious people who had come to worship God. Well, when they were making so much money, they did like any good American. They said, how can we make more? They needed more room for more money changing so they could fleece even more people a couple different ways. But the temple didn't have a large area inside they could use. So the only place they could think of to expand their territory was in something known as the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, according to the laws God set down, was to be 80% of the temple ground was to be devoted to Gentiles. It's interesting because sometimes we we get the notion that the Jews weren't really interested in converting anybody, that that they weren't there to try to reach out uh, to interest others in the God of the universe, but quite the opposite is true. God said when you get to Jerusalem in the temple, 80% of the space is to be used for those who don't yet know God. And they are so they can come close and listen to worship and, and observe all that has happened and be moved closer to God. But that was the only uh, land and territory and space available to expand their business. So the land that was supposed to be for the nations to come and worship God became used for money changing. And so Jesus said, this house is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, 80% of it. 
but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And he drives them out and turns over uh, their money-changing tables. Now, I get a picture of Indiana Jones with his whip. But likely scholars says it's not that, say it's not that violent an act at all. Jesus wears uh, tassels called tzitzit at the bottom of his robe because God commands it. Little cords, and they are arranged and tied in such a way to symbolize all the commandments of God. So what Jesus is doing is taking these thin little cords off his robe and running it across the table as a way to say to these guys, you're not obeying God. You're disobeying what God told you to do. It's not a violent act, but it's extremely symbolic. And they get the message. Why did they kill Jesus? He was inconvenient. Just as he was inconvenient politically for Pilate, he became inconvenient economically for these people who were living very high on the hog uh, in Jerusalem and in Jericho because of what was going on in the temple. Well, you might wonder, though, what about the crowds? Didn't they yell, crucify him, crucify him? It's an interesting thing that indeed crowd did uh, yell that, but you need to know two things. One is that Mark and Matthew are pretty clear that priests are circulating among the crowd, uh, telling them what to say. And scholars seem to be pretty clear now that the crowd that greets him near the Mount of Olives, near Bethphage, on uh, Palm Sunday yelling Hosanna is not the same crowd five days later in the wee hours of the morning yelling crucify him. These are not fickle people who have changed their mind at all. If you want to look for fickle people, look no farther than the 12 guys who follow him. For three and a half years, they have pledged to become just like the rabbi and to go wherever he goes, including uh, to bed at night and to the restroom. You follow the rabbi everywhere. But when the rabbi is arrested and, and is carried off to the cross, they desert him. They do not follow him. It was convenient. It was quite wonderful when he was turning water into wine and people were cheering him when he was uh, multiplying bread and fishes, when he was raising the dead and healing lepers. It was a pretty good deal to follow Jesus around and, and as they say, have a disciple strut, just kind of look around like he's the man and I'm with him. I'm like second to the man. But when the man is turned over and when the man is arrested, it's no longer quite so convenient to follow him. And they distance themselves from Jesus as quickly as they can. Peter denies him in a matter, I guess, of minutes or hours. And then, according to a Mark, there's a young man following Jesus who's sleeping at night where Jesus sleeps there in the Mount of Olives and has only his sleeping robe on, just his undergarment, his boxers in a sense. And when the Romans try to grab him, he is so eager to get away from Jesus and to distance himself from Jesus that he runs off naked and the soldiers are left holding his garment. Many people believe that that person is Mark himself, though he does not identify himself by name. But it becomes inconvenient to follow Jesus, and when it becomes inconvenient, they turn away. Well, I'm not here to throw rocks at them this morning because, believe me, all of us have found following Jesus and to be named with Jesus and partners with Jesus to be inconvenient at different moments in our life. I remember a good friend of mine who grew up in another religious tradition, and they had services for the youth on Wednesday night separate from the adults. And he said the purpose of the services for the youth on Wednesday night was to make us rethink and feel bad about what we were planning to do on Friday night and Saturday night. And he said then we also had youth group on Sunday night, which the purposes seemed to be to make us feel real bad for what we went ahead and did on Friday night and Saturday night. This whole religious affiliation with Jesus was rather inconvenient for the weekend activities. But we found him inconvenient at work, have we not? 
We found him inconvenient when driving on Loop 410. We have found our association with him to be inconvenient when we pull out the checkbook. We have found him inconvenient ourselves. I remember a Catholic bishop who died in the cause of Christ in another country, and this is what he said. He said, when I was feeding the hungry, they called me a saint. But when I started to ask questions about why these people were hungry in the first place, they called me a communist. And they killed him. Because he started messing with their economy. Jesus is okay. Till he gets a little inconvenient. And then when he gets inconvenient, some of us want to go the other way. We've done it. We've all done it. But maybe we're not as bad as Judas. We haven't even talked about Judas. Judas actually was the one who betrayed Jesus. He did it by giving the location of where Jesus was every night at the Mount of Olives away to the officials, uh, to the officers of the priest's guard, so they could arrest him at night while there wouldn't be a hassle and there'd be no unrest. It wouldn't be inconvenient for anybody. And they could have him tried and almost executed before most people would even find out about it. That was the betrayal. Well, why? Did Judas find Jesus inconvenient to his life? Evidence doesn't seem to indicate that. In fact, we're told Judas was the treasurer, which means Jesus trusted Judas a great deal. Now, one of the Gospels says that uh, Judas was reaching into the till for himself, but apparently didn't bother Jesus enough to confront him about it. Probably wasn't a matter of inconvenience. There might have been something else going on. Scholars have recently discovered this, and it makes some sense to me. You remember last week, and if you're reading in the Jesus way, you remember meeting a group of people called the Zealots. And the Zealots' goal was overthrow the Romans violently. Get rid of them. Send them home in body bags. If possible, uh, we just do it with terroristic acts. But if we could have a major overthrow and win a war with them, that'd be great too. Violent overthrow. And Jesus has a zealot among his followers. His name is Simon. The main city, the main places that zealots were found were, was in Galilee. And some of the main hangouts there were a place called Gamla and another place called Cana of Galilee. Those were places where, uh, where revolution was uh, uh, fermenting and it was building. As far as we know, there wasn't a whole lot of revolutionary activity in Judea, except for one little town was a rebel base, you might say, a zealot base. In Hebrew, it's called Ishkarot. In your English, King James and Revised Standard Version, it will say Iscariot. Judas is known by the rebel zealot town he comes from. It is quite likely that what Judas wanted was to start a full-scale war between God and the Romans. And he turns Jesus over, it seems, in this line of thinking, not because he doesn't think Jesus is God, but because he thinks he is. And when they get him in a corner, Jesus is going to call down the angels and the the game's going to be over. If he could start this holy war, it would solve all of the things that the zealots want. But he miscalculates, doesn't he? He turns Jesus in to force his hand against the Romans, but he's wrong on two counts. Number one, Jesus never came to rule the world by war. He would come to rule it through peace. Jesus didn't come to free the world by killing people. He came to free the world by dying for them. Judas missed that. But he missed something else even bigger. Judas, when he realized his error, never came back to Jesus. Not in the courtyard, not in the trial, and not even to the cross. 
And that's a real shame because I believe that Judas still believed Jesus was God and that Judas was still faithful to God. There's a very interesting passage that Jewish scholars have found for, for us Christians. And when, uh, when Judas is upset about what he has done, remember he takes the 30 pieces of silver? Remember what he does? Just tosses them. Tosses them, throws them away in the temple. Ezekiel 7.19 is a passage about people, they've made an error. They have sinned gravely. They recognize their error. They dress in sackcloth and ashes, we're told, and they take their silver and they throw it in the street. I was wrong. We were wrong. We threw our silver. Was Judas doing the same? And if he would have just stuck by a little longer and walked to the cross, what would he have seen? He's a Jew. He wouldn't have listened to words as much as he would have seen a picture. Let me just paint the picture real quickly what he would have seen. He would have seen a man hanging on a cross with a crown of thorns so that his head was bleeding. He would look at that man, and when they thought that man was dead and they were trying to see if he was or not, they stuck a spear in his side near his heart. The man would have been hanging on the cross with large nails like railroad spikes driven through this part of his hand. And he would have had spikes drawn through his ankles as they were drawn together. He would have been wounded and bleeding from his head, from his heart, from his hands, from his feet. Now go back with me to the temple. Before you get to the court of the Gentiles, before you get to go and worship God, even as a Jew, and you're going into the temple, what do you do? You stop at one of 90, 100, 120? Archaeologists don't, haven't found them all yet. Baths, ritual cleansing baths, and you, and you go there to do two things, to de- rededicate yourself to God and then to receive forgiveness and cleansing from God. And you put water on your head to forgive and cleanse the thoughts that you've had. You put water on your heart to forgive and cleanse the choices you've made that have been poor. You put water on your hands to forgive and cleanse the actions that you've taken that have been not what God would want. And then you put water on your feet to uh, ask God to forgive and receive forgiveness for the past that you've gone in life with these errors that you've made. You could look at the picture on the cross and what do you see? You see forgiveness. Not in water. You see it in blood. If Judas just could have hung by the cross, he would have seen a man that says, I know that I'm not convenient. I know that you will be disappointed in me sometimes, and that will cause you to fall. I know sometimes you will disavow me, that you will not do what you know you are to do. I know that. I know that you will sin in your thoughts, in your choices, in your actions, in the way that you go. But I want you to know that even though you find me inconvenient at times, you are forgiven and I love you. If only Judas could have brought himself to the cross, because he still believed, I think, he would have found that. You see, one of the things about Jesus that he's, is that he's very open to taking our hurts and our mistakes and our errors 
and our brokenness upon himself at the cross. And he has an amazing way of forgiving them and turning them into something better. The story is told about a church with a lovely, very large stained glass window like we have. And in the Allied bombing as they moved into Nazi-occupied territory, the stained glass was shattered, blown all over, outside and inside. They began to collect some of the pieces. And after the war, one of the artisans took the pieces of this cross, of the stained glass rather, and rearranged them. It wasn't the same picture. And everybody knew that. Everybody agreed that. And he put it back together. But the amazing thing is that everybody said it was much more beautiful than the previous stained glass. He had taken the broken pieces and put them together into something that was whole and better than what was there before. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the betrayals, the denials, the hurts, the illnesses, the sufferings, the brokenness we bring, and he makes it better and makes it other and makes it more beautiful than it was before. Do you remember a couple weeks ago? Service closed. We each have a piece of pottery, and we brought it to the foot of the cross, and we put our brokenness and our hurts before Jesus, and we waited to see what he might do with them. See if you don't think he turned it into something that was more beautiful than what we gave him.